Senzauer, hosted by Shane and Derek, part of the Hockey Podcast Network. Welcome back to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Sends Hour Podcast, hosted by Shane and Derek, as always, and sponsored by Customized Sports. It's Shane, we've got Derek along with us, and it's been kind of a wild couple of days since our last episode in the NHL with, hey, a lot of things have happened. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll jump right into it. As most of you guys have found out, there most there will be a season at some point in January. It sounds like a 56-game season. Uh, starting January 13th. Exciting times. I mean, finally, the NHL has decided now to put aside the financial situation, at least for now anyway, and they're going to move forward with the uh, current CBA in place. And we're going to have puck drop it, by the sounds of it. I mean, there's still, of course, there's still logis- logistics uh, to be worked out. And, and there is a coronavirus situation that is still rapidly ramping up. Um, So there's definitely some caution moving forward, but uh, let's be positive right now because it sure sounds like there's going to be an NHL season uh, in mid-January. 100%. And I'm super excited. It would mean that players would be – training camp would open up on like the 28th of December. Ottawa players are already starting coming back. I think there's like five of them that came back the other day. Uh, Colin White, Brady Kachuk to be some of them. Apparently, Hogberg is just almost done, if not already done, his uh, his isolation two week isolation period in Ottawa. So it's going to be real interesting to see. You know, we should start seeing Branstrom and Balsers and Schlappick, Abramov starting to recall over the next like week or so. Yeah, all the guys that are out in Europe, you will start to see them kind of flood in and do their fourteen day quarantine and get that done. Uh, and then get back to playing hockey, uh, which is what we want to talk about. Finally, uh, we're going to get to talk about hockey. Uh, one recent bit of news that leaked out about this new startup um, is that the kind of promised um, seven-day pre-training camp for the seven non-playoff teams, Ottawa included, um, basically that's kiboshed for now, and it looks as though everyone's going to start at the same time. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised that something had to give. I hope that they allow them at least a couple of days where you can um, they'll they'll start on the uh, twenty on the the twenty eighth, and then the other teams will start on the first. I'm really hoping that is something that will happen, but I'm not not a hundred percent. Maybe they'll just supply them with an extra draft pick. I mean. <laughs> That, that was my idea, and of course, uh, it's from a bias standpoint because I want Ottawa to get all the draft picks. But uh, maybe we'll get an extra draft pick because we kind of got screwed on the lottery situation as well when you had teams whining about being in the play-ins but then not being included in the lottery. Uh, I'm Montreal Canadiens uh, to, to be one of them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I hope there's some sort of compensation for this because I do feel like the draft lottery is probably due to change. I, I hear lots of talk about changing the way the format is set up right now and just the way that it played out. Obviously, it didn't look good on the league when a team like the Rangers won the draft lottery in, in such an important season, especially for some of these rebuilding teams. 
Um, so if we're still a little ticked off about it, um, we should be. And hopefully there's some sort of compensation for the for these seven non-playoff teams moving forward. If there isn't, at the end of the day, we have hockey to talk about, and and that's really all that counts. But uh, but if there is some some sort of compensation, that would be great too. Yeah, hundred percent. And at the time of this recording, we're recording it on December eighth. So for us to be, you know, a fourteen day quarantine, if my math is correct, we would be looking at players arriving back into Ottawa no later than next Monday. So there's about a four to five day grace period right now at the time we sh- of players returning. Everyone should be in Ottawa by the 14th, which means that this needs to be done by the end of the week. If they're looking for like a January 1st uh, training camp open, then they this needs to be done no later than the 16th of December where players can return in. So I would expect over the next couple of days to see a lot of our guys brought back from loan and you know you know who's the guy i don't expect back is gustafson yeah no (laughs) um he's doing well where he is too he continues to do well um so yeah it wouldn't be a bad thing for him to stay there there's no american league as of yet so uh so it doesn't really make sense to call him back although there is that um you know the taxi squad or whatever they're calling it they are allowing for, by the sounds of it, they're allowing for a 25-man roster, if I'm not mistaken. So I think it's 26. 26, there it is. Um, and then uh, four other taxi squad. So they can, there'll be a, a from 23 to 26, and then four extra taxi squad players pushing it up to 30. Kind of basically like the, the play-in, like basically the playoffs. Yeah, but but again with Gustafson, I mean we have Decord as well, so uh, there is no real need to rush Gustafson. And then there's the whole Anders Nielsen thing that um, you know technically he's on the books, but he's not going to be paid on the books because of the LTIR. Um, but if he does end up recovering from the concussion stuff, uh, it definitely makes the crease situation a little bit more interesting. Would you say? One hundred percent. I mean, with Hogberg under because. Here's the thing. Without with they must have they must think that Nielsen's not coming back for them to make the move for Murray because it would make no sense for them to have three goaltenders under contract for under an NHL contract because Hogberg has is on a one way deal this year. So they must have felt like Nielsen's done. So I think any kind of possibility of him coming back is at least this season is out of the water. I you know, I think Hogberg is done. I think he goes to Seattle at the end of the year. Um with the core oh, yeah. because the core is also had on a one-way contract for next season. Hmm. Uh, so I'd, I wouldn't be surprised to see Hogberg in, in Seattle, unfortunately, but I think as a sense fans, we shouldn't worry about Anders Nielsen coming over and kind of messing with the crease because I think they, the senators themselves are under the impression that he's done for. Right. Which is why they made it kind of priority a to go and acquire a goaltender of Matt Murray's elk, you know, someone that can come in and, kind of take that crease over right away and provide some experience, even though he's like 26, which is relatively young, but two cups. He's got two cups under his belt. He played for an experienced team. Um, How do you think he's going to fare though with an inexperienced decor in front of him versus, you know, Pittsburgh's team? I don't think, I think the, so the way Hogberg fared is, Probably as long as similar. Like, Hogberg was like 5'8 and 8 in Ottawa. 
I think we we should expect Murray to stand on his head, and if he doesn't, Hogberg can step in. I think our defense is on par with what it was last year, if not a little bit better with the addition of Willannon. Say Willannon makes a big difference. But a lot of our problems last year, I found, was our forward group wasn't the greatest at helping getting the puck out. They would get stuck along the half boards. They wouldn't be able to push the puck up, and it would lead to some costly turnovers and goals. I think we've improved enough on offense where those mistakes won't happen as frequently. So I think Murray or Hogberg will fare a lot better this year than Anderson, Nielsen, or Hogberg fared last year. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that was a bit of a sidebar because we are kind of trying to stay focused, I guess, on this NHL restart, um, at least the unofficial announcement so far. Um, the, the one interesting thing, too, is that there is no real training camp. I mean, there's a training camp, but it's not what we would think of as a typical training camp. There is no exhibition schedule. We're going to get right into the 56-game schedule, in, in, right into hockey games, uh, basically immediately in uh, mid-January. So what do you think about the internal competition that the Senators have? Um, I know we've talked about it before, but it's going to be more interesting without exhibition games. So honestly, personally, I think I, I mentioned earlier, in the, like literally like five minutes ago, that we could be seeing some people brought back. Thinking about it, we could see very few people brought back. If there's no AHL season, would you rather like would you rather branch from playing overseas or being a, like a practice squad guy? I think you know we could see guys brought back and then reloaned if there's no AHL season, or guys just not brought back at all. You know, could Abramoff or or Brandstrom, Gustafson be guys that stay over in Europe for the rest of the year because it's better for them than being brought overseas? This is such a unique situation and has such a major impact on the development of some of these young players. I mean, some of these players are going to be almost missing a season of hockey in their development. So it'll be interesting to see kind of where their curves go in terms of their development and what the impact of the coronavirus has on some of these young prospects. Um, and we won't know this stuff until years down the road. And then even years down the road, we'll be saying, would this player, you know, eventually kind of phase out anyway, or was it an impact of the coronavirus situation? And, you know, they didn't get a proper development. Um, so yeah, it, it's a tough decision because, you know, a player like Brandstrom, for example, like you said, do you leave him, in Europe, but, but I mean, the situation in Europe is no better than it is here. So are they going to be having a full hockey season there? Is there going to be more disruption to the hockey season? There already was a few times. Um, it, it's all these questions are still up in the air and, and we don't even know really, is there going to be an NHL season because of the coronavirus, because of the, the pandemic, we're already seeing it in the world juniors. Um, it's going to be an interesting time. Yeah, so it's funny because the AHL was hopefully to start December 4th. Um, that's not happening, obviously. It looks like the earliest the AHL will start is February 5th. So this also brings up the question, do you just leave Branstrom and Co., the guys you think will be in the AHL, do you leave them over into, into Europe until Belleville camp opens up? Because I'm just trying to – like we have to think of it like, okay – they're going to come over, you know, let's say that two weeks make a, that's two, three weeks make a huge difference. The other thing is you just have them practice with each other and whatnot, which could help. But, you know, if they're playing games overseas, they have to take a two week quarantine no matter what. 
So it's just a matter of figuring out which one is less detrimental or more beneficial to the players. But I, I also feel like we might not see some players back this season, depending on things like that. It, it really is so hard to just play off all these hypothetical scenarios because we there's so much uncertainty. There's so much unknown. It's just almost impossible to predict what decisions are going to make. And, and I'm sure these decisions are difficult, just as difficult as it is for us thinking about it. It's even more difficult for the people that are having to make these tough decisions on, on kids. Um, speaking of tough decisions, um, the New York Rangers also announced that they would not allow Alexi Lafreniere to participate in the World Juniors. Um, do you think that is a product of the coronavirus, or do you just think that's purely based on the fact that they hope him, uh, they hope that he's in their lineup and they want to develop chemistry? Well, I think it's the fact that he, if he goes, he's probably going to have to quarantine a little bit. Uh, so realistically, what kind of benefits that? Yeah, you, you go to you go to Red Deer, you have to quarantine for at least ten days, most likely. So what what benefit would it be to send him now? in case the season were to start at the end of December. Like if you were to have training camp open January 1st, you want him at camp. You don't want him. And then you would feel bad for pulling him from, you know, from team Canada. If you plan on having him, I think, you know, the reason why, why Byfield is there is I don't think LA is really convinced that he's going to make the NHL. I don't, I don't see LA being like, Hey, he's going to be our day one starter like a second line center or whatever. I think they're looking at him as like, we're probably going to send him back to junior anyway. So may as well send him to the world. And then if, you know, whenever team Canada is eliminated, he can come to camp and, and whatever. I think that's the same thing with, with Stutzel is he hasn't played in nine months. Do we need him in camp this year? Probably not. Would it be beneficial? hundred percent. Just let him go to, let him go to the world's play games and go from there. Yeah, I think with Byfield, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think um, Yannetti, I've heard Yannetti even say himself, Mark Yannetti with the, with the Kings, um, he said himself that he didn't feel like Stutzla or Byfield, whichever way they went prior to the draft, would be NHL ready this season. Um, Ottawa's seen things a little bit differently. They came out publicly saying that they believed, prior to the draft, they believed Byfield was less NHL ready than Tim Stutzla. Um, and then, of course, Tim Stutzla kind of fell in their laps at number three. And here we are talking about it. But uh, honestly, I feel like Ottawa is committed to having Stutzla play. From from everything that I hear, uh, everything that I'm seeing, it really does feel like they are including him as a member of their team this season, almost no matter what. Um, I know that we'd, we'd see it differently that way because we've had that conversation before. Um, but... Another interesting scenario with the Senators prospect from 2020, Ridley Gregg. I mean, he tested positive for coronavirus, I think it was like two weeks ago. And like at the start of camp, at the start of the World Juniors, like three weeks ago. Yeah. Middle of November. So apparently, like Bruce Garriott just released this information. Apparently, because of that, they're not allowing him to participate in the World Juniors. So. That's a, a big loss for him because theoretically you would be, I mean, especially when he's asymptomatic, he would be completely COVID free at this point. But I guess that they don't want to take any more risk and I get that. But that's a, a huge blow for a kid that was uh, hoping to make an impact uh, 
in front of the world. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's the the IIHF's ruling, not Team Canada, because we've seen Sweden get decimated by it. Germany has lost a couple of players. That's right. So the Germans lost. Uh, did, was it Paterka that they lost? I think so. I don't remember, yeah. but I'm pretty sure. I know it was a it was a key member, and I mean, we're talking about Team Germany. We're not talking about a team like Canada who has all the depth in the world. We're talking about one of their top players. Um, you know, Stutzla is really going to have to stand out and and be a player if they want any chance that realistically they probably don't have much of a chance to compete against some of the good teams. But, uh, but yeah, it's even even harder if you lose a guy like Paterka. Hey, I mean, with the way Sweden's going, they may not be able to ace a team. And they're, yeah, they've been, they've been hit the hardest by, by a far. I mean, they've got coaches, they've got players, they've got like star um, players too, like top line. Yeah. And like one, one person that kind of comes to mind where through all this is more cider, the defensive prospect out of Detroit, Detroit wouldn't allow him to play. And I think it kind of comes down with the same thing with Alexei Lafreniere is that you don't want to risk it. You know, he's going to be in camp. He's probably going to play in the NHL this season. There's no reason to have him go to camp. So then, it, it, I mean, it begs the question, should Ottawa allow Tim Stutzla to play if they see him as a senator? Or do you think there's a little bit more leeway there where Lafreniere is a guaranteed lock NHL player? Moritz Sider is now two years into his development and a guaranteed NHL roster spot, whereas Tim Stutzla is more of a, he could be on the team. Do you, do you see it that way? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I think it's more of we're going to give you a shot at camp, but nothing's guaranteed, and that's kind of the way DJ Smith has run ran last year. Like you have to work for your ice time. Just because you're drafted third overall does not mean you're going to be given top six minutes. You're going to have to earn it. And I think if you were to tell Tim Stutzel that you, oh we're going to not have you in, not have you go to the World Juniors because we think you might have a chance of making the roster. That if I if I'm Timmy, I look at that as kind of disrespectful because like I haven't played in like nine months. I want to go play. I want to compete. I want to play represent my country over a possibility of playing in the NHL. I think with Morris Sider and Alexei Lafreniere is more of like you're gonna be up in the NHL. You're gonna be playing significant minutes and whatnot. For for guys like that, like I just I'm not really if like, like I'm not worried about it. Um, I would be kind of worried if I'm if I'm as an Ottawa fan if we kind of gave, uh, you know, if we kind of gave it to him, kind of just gave Timmy Stutzel a slot. I think it would go against everything DJ Smith has tried to work over in the years, like over the first year. So like, it, it's kind of like it's good. There's there's good and bad with it, and you can pick whichever side you want. But until until he's at camp, until he signs, it, it's the best thing for him. Yeah, and, and we've seen that approach fail in the past. I mean, they did it with Batherson last season where they thought he had proved enough in the American League to earn a spot out of training camp, even though he theoretically didn't earn the spot. Um, they tried to give it to him, and it lasted all but two games, um, and he was sent back down. So at, at least if they do hand him the spot, it does seem like they have that awareness to say, okay, this player, we thought he was ready, but he's not ready. So we're going to take that spot away from them because like you said, nothing in the NHL is guaranteed. You should never be as an 18 year old, you should never be handed a spot on a roster. 
and that's not the way you want to start. So it is important to realize that it has to be a competition and there are people that are older than Tim Stutzla that might deserve that spot a little bit more. And you could bet your bottom dollar that they're going to come to camp and work their ass off to take that spot away from Tim Stutzla. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I remember when Kachuk came into the league and everyone was pissed and everyone was moaning about how, you know, Boucher didn't give kids chances and whatnot. And then he kind of just took the number one spot. Like he, he took that top line spot in his rookie year. Like coaches don't hand position, like good coaches don't hand positions to players. You have to earn it and you have to continuously earn it just because you have one good game or two good games. Doesn't mean you're guaranteed that spot the rest of the season. And that's kind of with Batherson is that, and, and we saw once he got called up again, we saw it with Logan Brown, DJ Smith is very much like, I don't care who you are. I don't care the name on the back of your Jersey. If you play well and you play consistently well, you're going to get the minutes, which is why I've been saying that. I think Anisimov might be the dark host for that number one center spot, but that's not about this discussion. I just think overall, there's no one, no outside of Shabbat and Kachuk really, Nothing is guaranteed on this roster. Nothing. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. There's very few locks uh, when we're looking at such a young team. I mean, outside of, like you said, Shabbat, Kachuk, uh, maybe Watson on the fourth line, um, Anisimov, actually maybe not even Anisimov. If he doesn't show up and bring it, um, he could easily be the healthy scratch. Mm-hmm. I mean... Uh, you could say the same thing about Eric Branson, who they just picked up. He could, you could easily see him as a healthy scratch because there is no guarantee. Um, of course, contracts always come into play uh, in these situations. So maybe someone like Branson has a, a slight advantage over someone like Artem Zub, who's on a two-way deal, versus you know someone like Branson on a one-way deal. Uh, sometimes it just comes down to contracts. Uh, although this season will be different with you know, the 26 man roster as we were talking about. And you might see where Ottawa plays a different lineup kind of on a night in night out basis. They might give some of these guys cause they don't want them resting too long. If they do have such a big roster, they might give like, let's say Brandstrom comes, maybe they do give him a game every now and then just to get him some action. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also dependent on how people play in, uh, in the camp, like it's a short camp, so you're going to have to come out strong. And if you don't come out firing, you know, if you have one bad day, it's a completely different ball game than a regular camp where you have like two, three weeks. And if you have one bad day, it's not the end of the world. If you have one bad day in a 10-day camp, that could be it for you. So so how big of an advantage is it for guys like Balsers, guys like Abramov, uh, Brandstrom, guys that have already been playing – actual hockey versus the guys that are resting probably none considering that you know they'll have to probably be two weeks off you know if they're coming into quarantine for two weeks they'll actually be at a disadvantage because you have guys like if they were to come in tomorrow it's a little bit different but if you're seeing a guy like brahma showing up on you know next you know on on saturday or sunday versus a guy like kachak or white Duclair, or not Duclair, uh, Decord, who showed up like, you know, today or yesterday, you're going to be out there. They're going to be out there like five days early. They'll be allowed to hit the ice like five days early, earlier than you. So like you could actually be at a disadvantage 
in in that aspect. Like if I'm if I'm Balsers, I'm on my if I'm I'm on the phone with my agent wanting to come back like today. Like I'm on the next flight out of like wherever he's playing to Ottawa tomorrow. Like the, the first flight out. Because I want to quarantine as early as possible and you know be on the ice as quickly as possible in Ottawa versus playing like one or two more games this week and having to come in on Sunday morning or Sunday night and having to quarantine for two weeks. And the next time I'm on the ice is, you know, the 28th of December. Right. Just basically when camp is going to start. So yeah, you're right. That is, that is a fair point. That's, that's something I never even considered to be honest, but uh, that is a fair point because yeah, these guys are going to actually be at a, a bit of a disadvantage even though they have been playing competitive hockey for a little while, they're going to come back and they're going to go on the ice a little bit cold. They have to do 14 days of an at-home workout, you know, whatever you could do at home, which uh, I'm guessing these players don't have hockey rinks in their backyard. Um, you know, it's, it's basically going to be running around the house. <laughs> yeah. Like I just, you know, you know, the guys who came in yesterday morning, they'll be able to hit the ice as soon as, uh, you know, the 21st or the 22nd of December. And they're, it's not like they'll be able to go home for Christmas. So they're going to be in Ottawa over Christmas. They could may like, I wouldn't be surprised if we see pictures of Kachuk, White, Shabbat, all these guys who've already in Ottawa at the rink on Christmas Day. Maybe not in the morning, but they'll definitely, like, I wouldn't be surprised if we see pictures of it. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm, if I'm landing, if, I, if I'm these guys, and obviously it sounds like there's more guys that have been, you know, like who've been, you know, um, confirmed or, or put out there. So who knows how many guys are actually in Ottawa right now. But if I'm one of those international guys, I'm one on, I want home tomorrow. I want in Ottawa tomorrow. Absolutely. Um, one last quick question about this startup. What gets you most fired up and excited about this 56-game sprint of a season? Playing the West teams more than twice. Like, I All think... Right. I think, if, you know, we can all kind of all, you know, most most people can agree, you know, we get to see McDavid more than twice a year. We get to see, you know, Maddie, a Maddie Brady matchup more than twice a year. We get to see Elias Pettersson and co more than twice a year. We get to see Patrick Line, Mike. Like we get to see those guys more than twice a year. Personally, that's what I'm most excited for. Um, and, and that's really, I don't care about the, I don't really care how we do this year because of how weird this year is. I don't care if we overachieve or at the bottom of the standings because of how wonky this year is. We haven't played hockey in almost a year. I'm not expecting us to come out guns blazing. Um, but I just, I'm excited to watch McDavid more often or, or watch these West teams that we really don't get a, get much chance to watch throughout the year. By the time the puck drops, we'll have seen over 300 days of no Ottawa Senators hockey. So I'm most most excited for January 13th. I just want to see that damn puck hit the ice, and I want to see our boys. I want to see them back on the finally get to see some Ottawa. Wouldn't it be a live stream without some uh, stream yard crapping out on us? <laughs> but, yeah, I agree. I, I, Did anyone I never- catch any of that? Uh, I got the gist of it. You're ha- you want to just have you know Senators hockey back. Um, uh, kind of what it sounded like throughout the, the broken up messaging. <laughs> but <laughs> so I mean, go ahead and repeat it just for everyone to to hear it again. 
Yeah, my my point was let's get the puck on the ice. Let's just see. It, it'll it'll have been over three hundred days of no NHL Ottawa Senators hockey uh, by the time we hit the middle of January, or close to it. Um, so my point was I'm most excited for January 13th for the first day. Let's get some Ottawa Senators hockey. We'll finally get a chance to see our boys back on the ice. And hopefully uh, it came across a little bit more clear that time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, before we go to break, because we are hitting the half hour mark of our show, there is a breaking news segment uh, on Twitter, Hockey News. They just came out on the, the Scores app. It looks like Vegas is looking to move on for Max Pacioretty. This is big news because they traded Tom- wow. Thomas Tatar, Nick Suzuki for Pacioretty a couple years ago. So this is good. This is big news. For Vegas, Vegas signed Peter Angelo and Leonard. Now they're moving on from a, a another center, or a, not another center, moving on from a winger. And realistically, one of the two players that played with Stone, they've already traded Stasny, mm-hmm. and now they're looking to get rid of, rid of Patchetti. And that was their second line last year. Their second line was Patchetti, Stasny, and, and Stone. So this is big news coming out of out of Vegas. I talked about last week some of the repercussions of the Leafs um, jumping for joy when they signed John Tavares. Um, I kind of wonder if it's the same thing, where, again, you're looking at the biggest fish in the sea in Alex Petrangelo, and now you're seeing some of the repercussions of signing a guy like that. I mean, we know that the Vegas group was in turmoil a little bit. Um we know that they wanted to keep the same team together and they felt like they could win with the group that they had. And again, you go and you trade um, Nate Schmidt, who was a really good defenseman, and you just you just throw a curveball into the group when it's not necessary. I mean, Vegas was, in my opinion, one of the very best teams in the league. So uh, that would be huge if they traded if if they traded Pacioretty. That would be a monumental trade. It would be their probably their biggest trade aside from the Mark Stone trade. Yeah, it's going to be real interesting to see what happens afterwards because, like, you're you're you basically trade away Nick Suzuki and yeah. Thomas Tatar, who uh, I'm pretty sure Tatar um, led them in points last year with like 61 for Montreal. Yeah, and like. And they traded a first, second, and third round pick for Thomas Tatar out of Detroit. So, like, they they basically flipped two first round picks. Suzuki was a first round select, like select uh, selection the same year that Brandstrom was, and I think 20, 2017. Thomas Tatar uh, and like a, a boatload of picks for Max Pacioretty. Like, it'd be like if they tried trading stuff. Like, it realistically, like. I don't understand what's going on with Vegas. They got the, they got a sniff of the of of what it's like to win, and they're just like, all right, we're gonna go right ahead. We're gonna go steamrolling ahead, and if it fails, well, guess what? It sucks. We fail, and we're gonna be dog. We're gonna be dog crap for however, however long until it takes us to fix it. And like, no. I was surprised. Vegas has been essentially Vegas has been gambling since the start. I mean, like you said, they have a little bit of a taste of success unexpectedly in that first season and it derailed their long-term plans. So they are going to have to pay for this stuff one way or another. And we're going to see it down the road. This is going to be, this is going to be a bottom feeder team down the road. 
And Vegas fans have never been exposed to the NHL as a bottom feeder team. And, and let me tell you, it's, it's not as fun as you might think it is. I don't know why you would think it's fun, but they're playing Russian roulette a little bit. I mean, they've been a, a gambling team and I, they're going to have to pay for it. it, it it's going to happen at some point down the road. I don't see Stone ending his contract as a top six forward. I don't see Stone reaching third. Like, ha- like I think by the halfway mark of his seat, like his contract, he's going to be a bottom six forward. He's going to be a third line player because his skating's already trash. Like he, he his skating's horrible. His hockey IQ is what makes him so good. If he loses any of his stick skills, if his stick stick skills, which is his bread and butter, if those decline at all, he's done for in this league. And and like you're going to be stuck with that nine and a half million dollar contract because he's only valuable as long as he's able to ca- cause takeaways. Look, I, I'm a huge like I'm a Mark Stone guy. He was my guy in Ottawa. Um, so, so I won't be too critical. I think Mark Stone, his IQ is, it's not just good hockey IQ. It's like, it's, it's next level stuff. Like this guy thinks the game ahead of anybody else on the ice at all times, but oh, to me, it's, it, it's the pace of the game that is going to cause him trouble. If, if anything causes him trouble in the future, it, it's the pace of the game. Even though he's thinking the game ahead of time, the game is, is speeding up, you know? Uh, these players, these young players, they have more and more and more and more training as they come in. So for a player like Mark Stone and any player that's kind of older and their biggest weakness is skating and just how they move on the ice, I mean, that's a pretty glaring weakness. So I, I see your point, but at the same time, I think Mark Stone has still still has quite a few valuable years of hockey left in him. But I don't think that's going to be detrimental to Vegas. It'll be everything else. I mean, it'll be some of the trades they've already made, like the, the you know getting rid of a guy like Nick Suzuki before you ever see him play a hockey game is or just Brandstrom. or Brandstrom. It, it's it's absurd. It's you're moving on from these high level prospects that you worked really hard to get, and just because you had a taste of success in the beginning, so they better hope that they win a Stanley Cup out of this. Otherwise, I mean, these players, players like Mark Stone, who chose to go to Vegas, he's going to be looking back at the end of his career and saying, man, maybe I should have stayed in Ottawa. Yeah, I mean, I would love it. I would laugh so hard if Ottawa were to win a cup before Vegas or San Jose or Nashville. Like, I I think it would be hilarious if that was the case. If Ottawa could win a cup before any of those teams – we, we don't need to do anything else. They get, Ottawa, if Ottawa wins a cup within the next four years, who cares if Stone goes and wins a cup or Carlson goes and wins a cup? We, we have a cup already. We, like, we weren't winning with these guys, so like if we can win without them, who cares at that point? I think the only reason why Sens fans are going to, until there's success, even if it's just like playoff success without a cup, you know, going to the playoffs, winning a round, um, People are still going to hold on to those players because of 2017. They're not going to look at you know the two previous, like the two years after where we sucked with them. They're going to look at you know 2015, 2017, where we went on those runs and we're not with these players. And until we have any kind of success, that that's always going to be on their minds. So this team needs to go out, have some success, and we won't worry about it. And you know what? After the break, we're going to get into some of that uh, previous success and and 
some of Eugene Melnick's comments that are made in regards to some of that success and, and kind of where he sees this future team heading. That, that's for sure. So, yeah, we'll be right back after this word uh, from Life After Hockey Podcast, part of the Hockey Podcast Network. So we'll be right back, right back after this short break. Hello and welcome. My name is Brad Lieb. I am a former professional hockey player and this is the Life After Hockey Podcast. This is the place where I'll be interviewing former players and exploring their life after hockey journeys, including their successes, challenges, and the causes that they are passionate about. So please join me on the Hockey Podcast Network every Saturday for new episodes and follow me on Twitter at Brad M. Lieb for all my podcast updates. And until then, keep going and enjoy your life. Let's go Life After Hockey, baby. Woo! Hi, there you have it. Life After Hockey podcast every Saturday with new episodes. Brad Lieb and Co. putting out some great content for you on your weekends. But we are back. Uh, We got a good amount of discussion to to do within the last half hour or so. Uh, We got the Melnick quotes. And we also have some hirings from the Fens that we should kind of talk about real quick to get into the Melnick stuff. Um. Uh, what three, three new three new hires? I believe it is. Yeah, and, some uh, executives. Yeah. So, let's see if I can pull it up real quick. So I think it's Tom Hoof. Yeah. Is the club's new vice president marketing? Uh, Jeff Miranda will serve as executive vice president ticket sales and service, and Greg Olson has been named chief financial officer. And I believe there was also um, an extension for our president. Oh, uh, Anthony LeBlanc? LeBlanc, yeah. Um, I think LeBlanc signed an extension and has been named alternate governor, I believe, if I remember correctly. That's what they called it. Yeah, so they're sticking with a CEO. They're sticking with a president for the first time in a little while because uh, there was that was like such an ever-changing position for a little bit. Uh, so maybe Melnick's found someone that he uh, he likes in that position. Yeah, uh, so we got we got some hiring there, which is good. Got some front office staff being brought on, which is what I think people wanted to see. Um, but I think it goes well with what uh, with the quotes that we have from uh, from Mr. Melnick. But I think his article with Bruce Garriock is what we have going. Yeah, that's right. So I pulled a few selected quotes, um, and there's there's lots of good stuff. So I encourage you to go and read it. Uh, it's with the Ottawa Suns, Bruce Garriock, um, as always. So he recently interviewed Eugene Melnick. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, a, a bit of a disclaimer. There's a little bit of cringe in here, so. Uh, <laughs> So bear with us, but uh, here I'll read you the first one. We're gonna uh, read the quote and then we'll both uh, just basically comment on what that quote maybe means to us. Um, so so here, let's start with the first one by Melnick. Uh, we'll be a team that's active at the trade deadline, not as sellers, but as buyers, just like we used to. I mean, I think that's great. I mean, I, 
that's like mid two thousands when we went to the cup where, you know, even in 2017, we were buyers. We got Burrow. I mean, everyone was upset with that trade, but we got like, you know, I think it was uh, Stahlberg and, and Wig, uh, Wingles that we yeah. got in that year as well. That helped us over that, like in, in that run. So, I mean, I, and we've been sellers the last couple of years, which means that he's confident that heading into the trade deadline, we'll be getting ready for more playoff runs than we are for getting rid of assets. I love it. I think it's great. Right. So to me, again, I, like I'm trying not to overread into that one, because um, to me, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be buyers this year. And I think that's what people on Twitter got hung up on a little bit. Um, I think he's saying the future team is going to be buyers as opposed to sellers at the deadline. Um, just like they used to. So they're going to be adding, you know, some players that will kind of add to the core group and to the talent at the deadline. I think this year they have players on one-year deals, a few of them, like Anisimov, like Galchenyuk, that you would be surprised if they didn't at least try to sell at the deadline to get some more assets. Um, so I don't necessarily think that's what he's um, saying in this message. So uh, that, that's my take on it. Maybe he is saying, maybe he's just, kind of uh, proclaiming confidence in his team that, you know, this year he's actually going to be closer to the playoffs than people think. Yeah, hundred percent. I think, I think it also depends on play, right? If you have someone offering a second round pick for a guy like Anisimov, okay, bye. <laughs> like it's not necessarily like a, Oh, I want to get rid of you, but you know, you're probably not in the long-term plans, which means that like, Hey, if there's a contender that's interested in you, why would you not want to be traded to that contender? If I'm a guy like Anisimov, it's going to be real interesting how trades work this year. We might not have any of these like deadline deals like we usually did because of COVID. Um, but honestly, like I'm not, I'm not worried about it. I think it's one of those ones that like makes sense in the long run. Yeah, I think that was one of the less significant ones, perhaps. Uh, so here's one that that definitely got a lot of uh, fire and feedback for. Uh, this is in relation to spending. So uh, now here's the quote. So now we're going to stay somewhere in the center, depending on where it's at. Our budgets are always somewhere around, somewhere around 70 million, which is in the center. I don't make any money out of this team. What do you think about that quote? I mean, I don't like the whole, I don't make any money off this team, which I mean, is fair. I'm not surprised that he doesn't. We don't attend games. The arena isn't like, you really expect a guy to make money when, you know, we have 12,000 people in a 18,000 seat arena on like a good day. Yeah. He's not making money, but I also don't, I mean, I'm not surprised that, you know, 70, 70 million, you want cap space. You don't want to be at the cap every year. Like I, I personally, like you get into situations where like, okay, you know, if you have a, if you have a bad year, you don't want to sign someone to a bad contract that handicaps you for making moves. So being at seven, like I'd be more concerned right now at at, at eighty one and a half million dollars, I would be okay sitting like seventy to seventy five million. I'm totally okay with that. I would be worried, more worried if the seller caps like ninety, ninety five, a hundred million, and we're sitting at like seventy five. I don't or at seventy seventy five. I just think it's more like, hey, there's no reason to spend to the cap. And kind of screw ourselves any any out of any long term success. So so here's where I think people have problems with this quote, and here's where I have a bit of a problem with it. Um, Eugene Melnick himself is who proclaimed to be a cap spending team from 2021 to 2025 during the years of 
quote unquote unparalleled success. So is he backpedaling now? Be, and, and he has the coronavirus as a legitimate excuse. Is he backpedaling now saying that actually we're going to be more of a middle of the pack spending team? Or is this just simply related to this season and the, the immediate future? And is it taken out of context? Again, we don't know those things, but that's what Twitter is doing right now. Anytime Eugene Melnick will send something out, Twitter is going to have a reaction. People are going to have an immediate reaction. Um, it could be taken out of context. He could be talking about this season um, and the immediate future, and maybe the plan of unparalleled success is still in place. Um, but at the same time, he does have a viable out because the coronavirus did happen and it did hurt financially. Um, but at the same time, I would hope, as you said, I would hope they're closer to the 75 to $77 million range. You don't want to be right at the cap. You don't want to be the Toronto Maple Leafs and not be able to improve your team. I think it could also be like, we're not going to be lower than $70 million. You know, because you don't want to go into every year being like, oh, we're going to spend to the cap, right? I think it's more of like, we're going to spend to the cap when we need to spend to the cap, but we're always going to be in the $70 million range. Which personally, I'm totally okay with. Like coming in and saying, oh, we'll, we'll be a middle middle cap team consistently isn't a bad thing. You don't want to be a, a cap strap team like Anaheim or Edmonton, where you're kind of, you know, you're shitting the bed or you're a borderline playoff team and you're up against the cap. I'm okay if he's, you know, we're gonna be at we're gonna be at no lower than 70 million entering any given season. I'm okay with that. Yeah. And, and again, uh, on the flip side, the argument is the teams that win are the teams that spend. I mean, we haven't seen a team in recent memory that's a $70 million cap team that has won the Stanley Cup. But if Eugene knows that he's close to winning the Cup, actually close to winning the Cup, I'm not talking about the 2017 Sens that went on, you know, some kind of miracle run or the Hamburglar run. I'm talking about a team that's legitimately contending um, would he spend over the $70 million uh, mark? I believe he would. Would he spend closer to the cap? I believe he would. Um, so here's the next quote. I didn't show up in Ottawa 17 years ago just to be there, just to play around and just to be competitive. If I didn't believe I could win a Stanley Cup, I would be so gone so quickly. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it's fair, right? Like, he when he came in, uh, what uh, 2003 is when he took over the team. You know, we were we were basically a cup contender. Took over a winning team. He added Hasek. You know, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was a league minimum or whatever, but he still went out and got a, a, a goalie like Hasek because our biggest need was goaltending. After the lockout, you know, he made he he signed Heatley. Like he spent money when he needed to spend money because he thinks that Ottawa can win a cup and he wants to win a cup in Ottawa. I. If you're an owner and you're just like, he wants to win a cup. I don't see anything wrong with it personally. It makes sense. Like if he didn't want to win a cup, he would sell to a, to an owner who actually cared and wanted to win a cup. He wasn't going to own a team, especially if he doesn't make money. Why would you just own a team to own a team if you don't make money off of it? Yeah. So to me, again, to me, this is the declaration that he's committed to winning a Stanley Cup in Ottawa. It's kind of the interview with the fan base kind of thing. He's got to resell himself. Um, the cringy part for me is the, I would be so gone and so quickly. Like it, it just, it reminds me of a Donald Trump speech. And that's why I get a little bit cringy. And it's the wording that he uses. 
That's fair. But, but it, yeah, it's Eugene Melnick, and I think we know what he's trying to say here. Um, here's the one that's even worse, though. Um, so, so you're going to probably chuckle a little bit at this one. Um, nobody's done what I did. I don't care what anyone says. Nobody has gone and gutted a team the way I did. We made a list, the top six guys, gone. Show me a team in any sport where the top six guys are gone. That was specifically designed. You had to be certain age to be part of it. I mean, it makes sense considering we didn't, outside of 2017, outside of that 2017 run, we were shit. We were shit with these guys. We didn't do anything with them. So if I'm rebuilding a team, I want a whole new culture. I want a whole new group. I want a whole, like I want a new core. So why would I keep around guys who have done shit all outside of one year around when you can get assets for them? Like it, yes. Okay. The, the way he said it was really bad, but the idea behind it, the whole, the whole concept, like what he was talking about, it makes a lot of sense because I'm sorry. Yeah, no one has done it because no one has admitted to. I don't think a single team, like even Detroit, Detroit didn't say, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna trade everyone." LA isn't going around trading everyone. They're gonna rebuild around those guys that are 30 plus years old. Ottawa said basically, "Fuck it." Anyone who's gonna be 30, like in their mid 30s, when the contract ends, is out of here, which makes sense. And and like really, like. It really does make sense cons- with everything considered, right? I mean, this is hindsight being twenty twenty, but it makes sense. Here, here's again. So here's the problem that people have with this. Um, Ottawa has not proved that what they've done recently is successful. So he's kind of jumping the gun a little bit by saying, nobody's done what I did. I don't care what anybody says. Nobody's gutted a team the way I did. Well, okay, anybody can gut a team, but... What's the finished product? We don't have that answer yet. So he's jumping the gun a little bit, proclaiming that, you know, this team is such a huge success. We don't know that yet. Like these these players may not work out. This thing may not work out. And he's kind of jumping the gun a little bit. And then aside from that, he's taking full credit for everything. So sorry, well, I mean, Pierre Dorian, but nobody's done what I did. <laughs> well, to be fair, though, as an owner, you have to agree. Like, most owners wouldn't be okay gutting their team the way Ottawa did. So I understand that aspect. Like I, yeah, I, I, I agreed to gutting this team. This is like, I, as an owner, I was okay with this plan. We set this plan in place. I like, I was okay with it. And I, I understand like, okay, he hasn't like, this team hasn't done anything, but he still has come out and saying like, you know, no owner has been willing to gut a team and willing to like, to stick to the plan and understand that we're going to suck for a while. Cause realistically as an owner, you don't want to hear like, Oh yo, we got to trade our six best players and we're going to shit the bed for three, four years. But if everything goes as planned and you know, it's a 50, 50 shot that it does, we can win a Stanley cup, right? He's putting a lot of faith in Pierre Dorian on cup. So he needs, like, we need to give him credit for that because most, most owners would have fired them, would have literally looked at them and be like, okay, well you're fired. Like, like Melnick deserves credit for this situation because he has given Pierre Dorian the trust and the ability to, to do this plan. And I think it makes sense. Obviously he needs to shut up sometimes and just not say it or have someone kind of say it for him. Cause the yeah. way he says it is not the greatest, but if you really look at it, like what he's saying makes sense. 
And, and I agree with what you're saying. So it's not the message that's the problem. It's the messenger. And, and he's not delivering these messages politically correct. He's, he's not a great PR person. He should stay the hell away from any microphone or anyone that puts any kind of media in his face. Unless it's because with us. It can come on to our show anytime. We'll, t- we'll take you, you. We're, we we're a Melnick-friendly show. Come on. <laughs> come and give us some of this stuff so we don't have to rehearse your quotes. Uh, here's I'll do one last one uh, because I think I, I left this one, which I think encompasses the overall message um, pretty nicely. And I wanted to leave with this one because I think I agree with what you're saying, Shane. It's that it, it's the way the message is being perceived is not how it's meant to be perceived. So here's what he says at the end. And this is the least cringy one and the best one for me. Uh, I hope I'm right that we're not just competitive. We can dream the dream in Ottawa. My objective this season is to allow people to dream the dream. The dream is that we win the Stanley Cup and we were able to build this thing from scratch. Yeah, I mean, uh, be, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I think, you know, he he's banking. There's a, there's a lot that can go wrong. You know, Brady K. Chuck, Thomas Shabbat, they have career-ending injuries, you know. Uh, Solar Sanderson don't don't plan out the way it does. Murray is a waste of a of a like of money or things can go wrong. And Melnick as an owner is taking a lot. Because imagine if this doesn't go right and Otto has to redo this. He like there's going to be a lot more at stake if he has to redo this if things don't plan out. So he's he's taking a lot. Like he is putting he's putting everything on the line right now because if this doesn't work out. He may as well sell because no one's going to trust him. Yeah. So in in a lot of this article, he compared all of this to horse racing. So you know that he's like that's his other business, and you know he's very much into that. So a lot of these quotes have a comparative reference to horse racing, and that's kind of what he used. So he is putting his chips in, as he said, uh, and I think he's a lot more aware now that he's kind of on his last leg here and. He needs to come through with a with a victory, or his time in Ottawa is is probably done. And and if his time in Ottawa is done, then uh, our time in Ottawa might be done too. So we have to be really careful about what we wish for. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't I don't see Ottawa moving. I don't see the league allowing that. But here's the thing: Melnick has learned from previous mistakes. In 2012, they should have just gutted the team. They should have like that was when they should have first gutted the team, and they didn't. They tried to retool. And then a couple of years later, we went on the hamburger run and we had Condon. Like, we have been straddling the line between good and mediocrity and, and shit. Like, it's just the way it is. So he finally was like, okay, like, it's time. It's time to just gut the entire thing. No more, no more false positives. No more, you know, wishful thinking trades. No more, you know, reacting on over, over producing players or whatnot um let's just gut it let's just start fresh whole new team whole new look and you know what i'm totally okay with it i love it i think it's great i'm happy with melnick and what he's doing he's sticking with he has stand he has stood behind and you know backed up pierre doran this entire time i don't i can't remember a single thing where he has gone against what pierre doran has said and, and per, for me, that, that makes me believe that the plan is going to work. That whatever they're, whatever they came up with, whatever they're doing, is going to work. You add in the fact that they signed Shabbat, they signed Colin White to these long-term deals, and realistically, probably would have signed Kachuk to a long-term deal 
if it was not for COVID. They went out, got Matt Murray. They went out, got Dadunov. They signed Connor Brown to a long-term deal. You know, there's a lot of these things where there, there's more positives, and hopefully this means more success than it does anything else. Yeah, and, and like any sport, there's risk involved. And, you know, like we just talked about, it could go south or it could go north. Um, but I think most likely when we look at the probability of some of these prospects, and we're already seeing uh, the fruits of, of some of that, um, certainly with Sanderson playing and Pinto and, and some of these guys playing, we're looking at it and we're seeing the potential and it definitely looks like it's there. So we've said this plenty of times before on the show, but we are a little bit more glass half full on this show. We, we are optimistic. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't be here. What's the point of being here if we were just pessimi- pessimistic about everything and we just decided that Ottawa should just fold up because they're never going to win? Um, you know, what would be the point? So, uh, yeah, the way I see it, uh, this team has a real possibility of being more successful as a collective unit, as a team, than they were in the past. 100%. And, you know, I know we're hitting our hour, but there's still a lot to digest over here. And I did want to talk about player comparables, because if you look at a lot of our prospects, you can look back to those mid to early 2000s, mid 2000s teams and find a lot. Like I think Pinto, for example, you know, he got a little bit banged up today. So he wasn't the greatest on the draws in a three, two loss to Denver for, for UND. Um, you know, but they were good. Like, he, he reminds me a lot of Radic Bonk in terms of his defense. Like, I feel like Pinto, his his floor is Radic Bonk, third line, shut down. You know, he reminds me a lot of, like, Antoine Vermette and, and Chris Kelly, those kind of guys. But his ceiling, really, Patrice Bergeron, man. This guy, like, watching him play, I said it on Twitter, and I'm going to stand by it. If everything goes as planned, he should have at least two Selkies in his, in his award cabinet his trophy cabinet by the time his career is done because the way he plays it's smart it's you know smooth i think he could be a top line center but also a shut down top line center that's in that's an impressive resume if, if he could be any of those guys um he's he's mr um pinto is is mr intangibles i mean he's just got so many good qualities to him um like you said it, it's you know dominating the face-off circle it's dominating the defensive side of the puck. Um, but it's also the, like he, he does bring the high skill as well. He's a great playmaker. He's got a great finish, especially in close. He does kind of remind me of a current Ottawa Senator in Colin White, but I think his ceiling is a little bit higher than Colin White. Although, again, Colin White had an off year last year because of injury. Um, I see him as a, as a really, really similar player to Colin White. He just brings a lot of the same qualities in my mind, um, but but he does it with a little bit more quality. 100%. And then, you know, you look at another guy who we've been talking about basically every episode up until recently, uh, Robbie Arventi. Can this guy be our next 50-goal scorer? We haven't had a 50-goal scorer since Danny Heatley. And, you know, when I was looking at his tape and I was watching, like, highlights of Heatley and, you know, there if your Venti gets a little bit meaner and can turn into a power forward, because let's be honest, Danny Heatley was a power forward who can score. You know, him, Rick Nash, they were kind of just all power forwards who could score. Could your Venti be a 50-goal scorer in the NHL? 
could he be what Heatley was to us in the mid-2000s? I believe so. I think he has the potential. He has all the, all the, uh, you know, small things, his, his IQ on the ice, his puck, like the way he plays without the puck, he can get open. I think really he could be a 50 goal scorer in the NHL. I think as with Heatley, I think some of that depends who you're playing with. So if, again, if Timmy Stutzla develops to being this prolific playmaking machine that he could be, could Yarventi be, I, I don't know if I want, I'm ready to say 50 goal scorer. That's huge. Um, could he be a 30-goal guy even, which would be extremely nice for a second-round player? Um, and and he brings a lot to the table that I think the Senators need in terms of finish. And and you said it best. I, I like the style that Yarventi plays with. He's great at finding those quiet pockets on the ice. I mean, he can sneak in, and he's a big guy. He can sneak in and find the smallest pocket, and that's all he needs to score. And it's on his stick and off his stick. So he does score in very similar ways to the power forward, uh, Danny Heatley, who, you know, we loved for years and then loathed for years after that. But uh, Yarventi, I think he has a lot to work on still. He's he's a very raw product. Um, I think there's a reason he's getting minimalized time, aside from the fact that his team is really good and he's just a young player and he's playing in a very good league. So there are there are those reasons as well. I think we'll get a better glimpse of what Yarventi is at the World Juniors this year. Um, because honestly, all I've seen from Yarventi have been highlights. And from the highlights, I could see that he's a pure goal scorer. I mean, that that definitely comes through in the highlight package. But what you don't get to see sometimes in the highlights is the play away from the puck and you know all the things that make a player a complete player. And I'm not sure that Robbie Yarventi is at this stage in his career a complete player um but if he can become one and i think that's what you're saying if he can become a complete player mixed in with that high quality goal scoring ability there the, the sky is the limit for robbie arventi and that's why they drafted him there because the potential to hit a home run is huge yeah and i mean we we talked about sanderson um last week and i i saw i was doing a little bit more research and i saw people comparing him to you know, people who watch North Dakota and whatnot, they were giving his ceiling as like a like a Scotty Niedermeyer kind of ceiling. And I mentioned I compared him to Wade Redden, which I think if his floor is Wade Redden, we are more than set at fifth overall. If he can become like a Scotty Niedermeyer or you know a raw, like one of those kind of defensemen, we're good. We're we're set. You know, I, I always stay a little bit close to the chest when I make these statements and I, and I don't sort of come in hot. But with when it comes to Jake Sanderson, I'm going to come in hot. I'm going to say Jake Sanderson's going to be an elite defenseman in the NHL and he's going to be Ottawa's best defenseman overall. Now, I'm not saying that don't, – don't get it twisted. I'm not saying Jake Sanderson is, out, is going to outperform Thomas Shabbat when it comes to point totals. But I'm saying as an overall value – Jake Sanderson is going to be one of the most valuable defensemen in the entire NHL. I think the Scott Niedermeyer comparable is great. I see him as like a modern day comparable as a Miro Heiskanen. I think the ceiling is that high. His defensive ability is impeccable. His offensive ability is so much better than people thought right away. I mean, we're talking about right, like immediately. 
he he basically stands out. Every time I watch him play, he stands out to me. And I don't know if it's because I'm biased and I'm looking for him or because he just does everything right. Like there's just nothing he does wrong. The details of his game are unmatched. 100%. I agree. And and this next comparison, I'm going to get a lot of flack for and I know it and I I know it that and you're probably going to you're probably going to give me flack but Drake Batherson, you know, I think his peak will, will play a lot. And I mean a lot, like peak Daniel Alfredson. I don't see him being like a 100-point guy. But, you know, if you watched it, like, Pete, like prime Daniel Alfredson, he was in the corners. He was winning board battles. He was setting – like, he was everywhere on the ice. He was making plays everywhere. I think Drake Batherson has that ability to be that effective. You know, he – you know, he can get it. He can win corner battles. He can win side, like half board battles. He can make plays anywhere on the ice. I think he's a guy that if, if we're going to look at senators, he's his closest comparable in terms of play style and attributes is Daniel Alfredson. All right. There you, there you have it. I mean, we are not going halfway tonight. We're giving you everything. We're saying <laughs> Drake Batherson is the next Elfie. I mean, that is a hot take for sure. Um, you're not wrong there saying that I, I'm questionable a, about that take. Um, but again, you could say the same thing about my Sanderson take. And, and we could we could sit here and tell you, you know, we could go halfway and kind of save face um, and say that, you know, this player is good, but, 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 uh, but we're not doing that tonight. We're, we're giving you our hot takes and our, our actual opinions of what these players' ceilings could look like. Um, Drake Batherson, uh, I actually looked at, initially I kind of looked at Mark Stone and I think it was just the later round draft pick that got me. I mean, the, and Alfie's a late round draft pick too. So that's uh, kind of a cool, um, comparable with those three, but, uh, but Drake Batherson initially, he reminded me a little bit of Mark Stone in, in that he was able to read plays ahead of time and kind of see how they develop, but his developmental curve did not necessarily uh, skyrocket as quickly. Although, actually, Mark Stone, I mean, he took a long time to come into the league. Yeah, so you could sure. you, you could argue that Batherson's ceiling, um, or sorry, his uh, developmental curve is actually steeper than Mark Stone's uh, initially, at least when early on in his career. But uh, Drake Batherson, I see comparables to Stone. I don't think his ceiling is going to be as high. I could see him... Uh, honestly, I see him as more of a 50 to 60 point uh, producer, still a top six player, but more um, more playing a role on the top six line as opposed to being the guy like he's going to he's going to be good when paired with other really good players. That makes sense. And I, I totally agree. I just I, I was watching like I was trying to I was watching a lot of highlights and whatnot, like games of players from the 2000s when I made these comparables and just watching Batherson and like Belleville highlights and whatnot, it just, it were again, watching the play, like watching Daniel Alfredson score the game winner against Buffalo in 2007. The OT. And and just watching that, that series unfold. It was just like, man, like all like Batherson just embodies a lot of this. And I think, you know, if we're going to, maybe, maybe it is kind of crazy. And I know people are going to lambaste me on Twitter for it, but I think Batherson could contribute to that level. 
I think we have we have a potential like I know a lot of people wanted Hoffman, Tourist, and, and Stone to be a Pizza Line 2.0. Mm. I really think that any combination of, of Kachuk, because I think Kachuk could be a 50 goal scorer. I really do. Like he's gonna get a lot of garbage goals, but I think he'll still if he can still score from the outside. I think he'll, he can be a 50 goal scorer. But I would not be surprised if we have a pizza line that has some sort of, you know, Yaraventi, Stutzel, or Pinto. Like, there's six guys that if they, if they, you know, exceed expectations or even meet expectations, we could have a pizza line again. And it's guys like Pinto, uh, Norris, Stutzel, uh, Batherson, Kachuk. You know, I think Abramov might actually have to be in that conversation as well. And, you know, I think I've, n- I've never been this excited for prospects in a very long time. And that's what's great. That's the beauty of this rebuild. It, it is because we can have these conversations and they are somewhat serious. Like we are talking about really some really, really top echelon prospects in the NHL that we have here in Ottawa. And if they do pan out, yeah, like their ceilings are extremely high and we could be talking about, you know, the next Alfredson here. Um, for me, when I look at Tim Stutzla, who's a player we didn't compare yet, um, I think he's obviously he's been compared to Patrick Kane. Would you agree with that one? See, it's kind of like, yes, but it's hard to really compare. Because if you're, if you're comparing him to Patrick Kane, are you saying he's a winger? And that's the thing is that if you compare him to Patrick Kane, you're comparing him to a winger, which means that you think he's a winger. It's hard to compare someone like him because you really don't know what position he's going to play. If he's a wing, if he's a left winger, yeah, I compare him to Patrick Kane. But if he's a center, you know, I look at a lot like a guy like like his his fellow countryman in Leon Dreisaitl. Both can play, like both players in Dreisaitl and Stutzel can play left wing and center. Yeah, so, he, he's got the versatility factor for sure. So is he more like Leon Dreisaitl than he is Patty Kane? You know, you can make the argument. I it's why I haven't touched Stutzel because until we know what position he's playing, it's very, very hard to like make it comparable with him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean that that is a good point. I I think like the way I look at it is he's like a Patrick Kane if Patrick Kane were a center. But I, I get what you're saying. They're very different positions, so it's a very tough comparable for me. What stands out the most about Tim Stutzla is when he's on the man advantage and he plays the half wall, and that's where I get the Patrick Kane comparable because Patrick Kane will play the same position on the power play. He runs the power play, much like I've seen Timmy Stutzla do in Mannheim, um, and he just always wants the puck on his stick, and he's it's his creativity, it's his agility. So it's, it's more so the skill set that compares pretty evenly with Patrick Kane but less about the actual positional play because I think Timmy Stutzla, he's got probably better hockey sense in terms of his ceiling than Patrick Kane because he he projects out as an NHL center. Yeah, and it's going to be real interesting to see what happens with him over the next couple of years because, you know, personally, I think Timmy Stutzla can be our next Jason Spezza. If we're going to be honest here, if he's going to play center, he that's probably his comparable, is Jason Spezza. If he's going to play wing, he's probably closer. You know, I don't even think we have a winger that really compares to him. 
because he's not a big guy, so he's neither Alfredson or, or Heatley. But, you know, he has, a, like, personally, I think if we're going to look at a winger, if we're going to compare him to a winger, it's Marian Hosa. If we're going to look at, it like, sen- like, a Senators comparable, it's Marian Hosa as a winger or a Martin Havlat and Jason Spets as a center. And I'd much rather a Jason Spets over a Marian Hosa and a Martin Havlat. Yeah, I actually see, now that you said Havlat, like, I kind of see the Havlat – I could see that being a close comparable. Um, it's funny because for a while I used Eric Carlson as a comparable for Tim Stutzla. And again, in some ways, like like what I said was that he was a high-risk, high-reward player. So he takes risks much like Eric Carlson, but he doesn't have to pay for it because he's not a defenseman. So he takes the, he takes the risks from the wing in Mannheim. He takes all the risk in the world because he knows he's not going to get benched for it and he doesn't really have to pay for it because – he has the speed, much like Car- Carlson did, to make up for it. And he's tenacious like Carlson was. He goes after the puck. He always pursues the puck. Um, so, I mean, again, you can't compare a defenseman to a forward. Um, but a, just more skill set-wise, that's what I use for a comparable. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And, I mean, I think Timmy Stutzel is probably like – Josh Norris, to me, reminds me a lot of Fisher. Oh, it, like, I, I, yeah, I can see like, that. Watching them, too, like – Better, obviously, a better offensive game, but just the way they they control the puck as like a when they're on the ice and like the way they they seem to slow everything down and how he he's tough in the corners, he's tough behind the net. He just he gives me like you know Fisher vibes. He just it, he reminds me of Fisher. And that would be we, incredible <laughs> if we can recreate you know Fisher like a a, a Spezza Fisher Vermette kind of, or bonk kind of trio down the middle rebuild complete that's all i gotta say <laughs> if, if we're talking ex-senators to me the most comparable to jason spezza is actually logan brown like i see a lot of jason spezza and logan brown except for the fact that spezza his foot speed at the time didn't hurt him because the game was played differently back then it was a lot slower where Logan Brown, like the pace really does, it's going to, it's going to hurt him if he can't figure it out. Um, But aside from that, like they have the vision, the high end vision and hands are really paralleled. I mean, the size factor, of course, um, you know, they're both really, really tall players, lanky players, um, but, uh, but they also lack a physical game. Um, And Spezza was, you know, was like that as well. He was silky smooth, but he didn't exactly play an intense game. So, uh, to me, Logan Brown is a close comparable to Jason Spezza if we're looking for one. But can, does he have the same ceiling as Spezza? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. We can compare players all we want. It's not going to make a difference. Uh, we're just going to have to wait and see. But it's fun to actually look back and like look at these players and see you know where where are they doing and what are they doing and how are they doing it. Um, and I mean, I put out a tweet um or during our last up ep- or after our last episode because we were talking about you know uh d pairings in senators history and it should be up by now so i'm gonna see where we're at with that i've just tweeted a lot over the last couple of- okay so top daring p- d pairings in senators history i it was carlson mathot red and phillips red and chera volchinkoff phillips i'm not take a guess which one's leading Oh, recency bias. I mean, we're talking about Twitter. 
it, it's a young person's game. I'm going Carlson Mathot just because yeah. it's Twitter. <laughs> They're sitting at 45%. Uh, second is Red and Chair because if you remember the Red and Chair pairing, it yeah. was monstrous. It definitely caused like offenses a lot of problems. Uh, second is Volchinkov and Phillips because I think everyone loved the A-Train and Big Rig combination of just beating people up. And then fourth at 10% is Red and Phillips. To be fair, they didn't play a lot together once Chara came here. Uh, but it's definitely, you know, I don't. <laughs> I think last week I picked number one. I picked Red and, and Phillips, I'm pretty sure. I uh, think so. Because yeah. that's, who, that's who I would pick. But again, that's, that's me maybe being older and seeing, you know, the team for what it was back then versus, you know, what we had recently. I love Carlson and Mathot, don't get me wrong. But to me, it doesn't compare to Redden and Phillips as a D pairing. I'm not saying Redden was better than Carlson. I'm not saying Phillips was was better than Mathot. I'm just saying as a D pairing, I thought it was more balanced um, and better defensively uh, as as Redden and Phillips versus Carlson and Mathot. 100% agreed. And I think one player that keeps – like you know what? One pairing that continuously gets forgotten about Gonchar and Phillips. Yeah, it was in that layover period, right, where Ottawa was kind of on that bubble of competing versus not really being a competitive team. So it it does get overlooked. But Gonchar, he was silky smooth when he was here at the end yeah, of his career, but he was still a really good player. And like Philip Kuba too. I think we forget that we had some really good puck moving defensemen uh, within our system. And I, I I'm I like Kuba. We had like you know Peter Schaefer. Who was actually, no, not Peter Schaefer. He's a Christoph forward, Schubert. but he was good, too. Yeah. Christoph yeah. Schubert. I always got those two confused. I don't know why. Oh, Schubert, Schubert. Yeah, he was uh, number five, I think. He yeah, played Schubert. number five. He, he, was, he was a good skater. Could move. Yeah, could remember Sammy well. Salo? Remember oh, yeah, of course. Sammy he had a bomb of a shot. A bomb Dude of a had shot. a crazy shot. Absolutely. Like, like, man, we've had some really good defensive like players on our, on our team over we, the years. We've had good – we've had – good defensive players that have a good aspect to their game, but they're not quite complete players. Like other than, you know, the few that we've just mentioned, um, there's been a few that, you know, they're good at this, but they're not so good at that. Um, but I think that's, what's going to change the most about the future. I think the future decor is going to be more versatile than any of the decors we've seen in the past. I really firmly believe that. And I think people get lost in seeing the decor for what it is today. And they're worried most about the decor and they're saying, you know, what are you going to do on that right side or, or what have you, but Sanderson's closer than you think. Um, and he's going to make a huge impact. Brandstrom. I still have really high hopes for Brandstrom. I really like Brandstrom, but I'd be okay trading him for like a, a true, I just don't see Brandstrom fitting in our top in our top four unless they go back on what they say and then let him play as a right side defenseman. I don't see any of these three left side guys being a third line, like a third pairing guy. And I feel like if Branstrom doesn't take that step, like realistically, if Sanderson passes over him, he, he's out the door. If, especially if Willandon has a really good year this year, he could be out the door as early as next off season. I'll tell you this right now. Sanderson is, going to pass over Brandstrom. I, I don't think, in my mind, there's no question that Sanderson is a better quality defenseman right now than Eric Brandstrom. I think Sanderson could step in the NHL 
and be more of an impact player uh, on the positive side than Eric Brandstrom could right now. 100%. I just, I worry about Brandstrom. I really do. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens because, like, he's small. And I know size doesn't always matter, but, like, when you're an offensive guy and you're getting pounded every night, and maybe they maybe they go back on what they say and they'll just play him on the right side. And you have a top four of Shabbat, Bernard Docker, Sanderson, Branstrom. Because who knows? Maybe Sanderson will be what like to will be to Branstrom what my thought was to Carlson. Yeah, and and the other one that you just mentioned that gets lost in the mix is JBD. Like JBD is he's been arguably he's been UND's best player all around. I mean, I, I'm including Pinto. I'm including everybody. I think J, JBD has been probably the best player I've seen play. He, he literally hasn't made a single mistake. His game has been flawless, and his skating ability is just insane. It, it's extremely smooth. That That's one thing Ottawa is going to be much improved on. All four of those top four defensemen are going to be able to move their feet like no tomorrow. I mean, the transition game is going to be fantastic yeah it's gonna be real interesting and i'm super excited about it before we run off because we've been over our hour we still have to do our over under and we're gonna base it on a 56 game season as always because that's what it looks like we're doing and we're gonna do a player that we've talked quite a bit about but we don't really know what to expect from him and that's anisimov we're gonna do an over under on anisimov points and i have him at 23 and a half points because I think to start the season, he will win the starting job and he won't let go of it. And I feel like if he's healthy in a 56-game season, he could play. He could get, you know, I think 20 and a, 23 and a half points is a reasonable mark for a guy like Anisimov. He's, he's multiple 20-goal scorer, whatnot. So I think it's, it's doable. All right. Be- before I kind of tear off on Artem Anisimov, um, because because I don't think he's going to achieve nearly 20 points. Um, I, I'm going under here. I will say thank you to Anisimov for bringing us Evgeny Dadnov, but I'll leave it at that because I don't know that Artem Anisimov at this stage in his career is, quite frankly, even going to be on the team uh, if everybody's healthy. So uh, I, I liked what you said, too, before, where you see him as a potential number one center, and it could happen. Just, just before, sorry. Yeah, he had twenty points last year in fifty games. In forty-nine games, he had twenty points. In how many games? In forty-nine, he had fifteen goals and five assists in <laughs> fifty games. So fifteen so, goals, fifteen goals, fifteen goals, five assists, twenty points in forty-nine games last season. That kind of blows my mind a little bit. Maybe I should have checked the stats before I'm proclaiming <laughs> Anisimov. I, I was going to say something really low, like ten points. Yeah, no, because I knew he had like I knew he hit du- like I knew he hit double digits, and I knew he missed most like he missed like twenty some games. I just forgot. I didn't realize how high it was. I didn't realize he had twenty points. I knew he was like thought it was like eighteen or or something. But yeah, no, he has he had twenty points at forty nine games. Here's the thing: we've got this this crazy funky season, um, and I really do think Ottawa is going to try to get reps for some of their young players. Um, and they're going to value that over someone like Anisimov. So the Josh Norrises, the Logan Browns that are kind of knocking on the goal on, on the door. If these guys break that gate open, they're getting the minutes over a guy like Anisimov and he's going to be the healthy scratch. 
So it, it a lot of it is is really highly dependent on what these younger players do. And if they take his position and his ice time away, uh, then Anisimov um, could find himself in the stands uh, watching the games. Um, but at the same time, what Shane said is also true. I mean, it could be the case where um, they decide not to play these players in Ottawa this year, and they decide to, ve- to develop them elsewhere, and then Anisimov could play a much more prominent role. So, um, so you could you could take my opinion on it, you could take his opinion on it, or you could ride somewhere in the middle. But but I'm gonna stay strong on my ten points. I'll say ten points. Like, so he was basically playing bottom six. Like he was playing like third, fourth line minutes for most of the season. Um, he ended the season hurt. Um, you know, he, he played against Pittsburgh and only played like 32 seconds. Um, and then he didn't play again because I'm pretty sure he was hurt. Uh, but his his four games before that, he averaged over 15 point, over fifteen minutes a game, uh, over, you know, 20 shifts. I think if he has a strong camp, like we said before, I think all, all center positions are wide open. Um, and between having Anisimov play our fourth or third line center over a guy like Norris, I'm taking Anisimov any day of the week. Um, if you don't plan on having Norris play more than 15 minutes a night, there's no point of having him in the lineup. I think the fact that he put up 20 points in 49 games with minimal ice time is very impressive. Uh, and I think he'll he'll improve on it. So I'm going to have him as over. I think he almost I think he hits 30 points. I'm going to I'm going to go as high as six and a half points over and say he hits a, a nice 30. I like it. And you know what? He, at the height of his career, who did he play with? Patrick Kane. Who does Tim Stutzla compare to? <laughs> Patrick Kane. So maybe he'll get a chance to play with him and, and maybe it'll be like yesterday. <laughs> hey, maybe playing like, because uh, like he was playing with guys like Connor Brown and whatnot, but like if he's playing first line with Dinoff and Kachuk, who knows what happens? Yeah, that's that's much different. So it does because that position is so volatile. Like we said before, the center ice position is definitely the most volatile on the Sens. We really don't know who's going to be the number one center. Um, we've made different guesses. You know, Galchenyuk maybe, Colin White maybe, possibly Anisimov, possibly Logan Brown, maybe maybe Josh Norris. There's just so many players that we have no idea at this stage who's going to be the number one center. And whoever gets those minutes is probably going to produce because they're playing with Dadnov and Kachuk. So uh, if he's the guy, then yeah, he's probably going to be a lot closer to the 30-point mark. Uh, if he's not the guy and he's getting fourth-line minutes and he's healthy scratched every other game, he's probably going to be closer to the, to the 10 points that I just told you. I mean, if he played in all 71 games last year, he would have been at 29 points. And as a third or fourth-line guy, that's relatively respectable. I'm pretty sure he would have been in top five in Ottawa scoring that, like, if that was the case. I think um, I think that would be great for a fourth-line guy, like for a third, third fourth-line guy who's really not fair. getting – really not getting power play time. Um, that's actually pretty damn good at five on five. Like, that's respectable numbers. I mean, I know he played um, – he had power play time. He did get some, yeah inconsistently he did get some power play time, especially at the start of the season. He did get power play time. Yeah. And like, it'll be really interesting to see what happens. Um, but no, he, so if for 29 points, he would have been uh, eighth, but you know, 20 points averaging 13, he averaged 13, uh, 1351 ice time. 
did a lot better than – and he was three points behind Colin Way, who averaged 15.42. It's almost two minutes more. Um, so, like, I don't know. I definitely feel like he could – he could surprise a lot of people. Yeah, it's the, the possibility – I'm not saying the possibility isn't there. Um, that's just kind of my feeling on Anisimov at this point, um, just kind of where I see it in terms of his importance to the team. He had five power play points. Or five right. power play goals. Goals. All goals. Nice. Yeah. He had five power play goals. He was tied with Ennis and Duclair with the most. <laughs> Ennis. I actually forgot he was on the team. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. so hey, Anisimov's those dark horses. If you wanna if you want a dark horse bet, Anisimov might be your guy. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about dark horses last week. He is another dark horse guy that you just don't really know. He does have some skill in him. That's for sure. He showed it before. 100%. I'm pretty sure he's had multiple, like, 20-goal seasons. But, again, when you're playing with Panarin and Kane, <laughs> that kind of I mean, helps. <laughs> uh, he, his first 20-goal season came with the Rangers. Or not even. Came, came with Columbus in 13-14. So that would have been, like, the Rick Nash days, potentially? He was traded for Rick Nash. Like, he was oh, part right. of the Rick Nash the trade that saw Rick Nash go to New York. So they, they didn't actually cross paths that like they didn't play together. No. And then he had three straight 20 goal seasons with Chicago and then had 50, he's had back to back 15 goal seasons. You know, his last two years in, in Chicago, he had over 30 points. Um, his first, like over his first two years in Chicago, he had over 40 points. So like he can do it. Obviously he was playing some with really good players, but like, he can do it, and maybe playing with Dadunov and Kachuk help him get there. And again, he was acquired for Zach Smith, so uh, not a bad trade by Dorian uh, at all, really. Not at all. Um, but I think that's all for today's episode. I think that we we've covered everything in the hour and a half that we've been here live. <laughs> Um, thank you all for, for tuning in for this episode of the Sends Hour podcast. Uh, you can find us on, you know, all your major plat- podcast platforms, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts on Monday and Thursday with brand new episodes. Follow us at Sends underscore hour on Twitter, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube. You can find us everywhere now. Uh, for myself, follow me at Shane underscore Ryan 97. For Derek, it's DLeo75. Remember to check out his send shot and new era sends articles. He'll have all the up-to-date news of your Ottawa senators. And if you're a football fan, you can head over to my podcast, my football podcast, 13th man podcast. We're going, we go live every week episodes once a week for now. We also have a website. So definitely check that out. And remember we do have a contest going on uh, at the cut by customized sports, win one free kit for any, in Ottawa, any Ottawa senators Jersey you have, doesn't matter the player, doesn't matter the era. We can get it. We can get it for you. So definitely go check that out. And yeah, we will catch you back here on Sunday or on Monday with a brand new episode. And hopefully we'll have a very special guest either on that episode or next Thursday's episode. You'll want to stay tuned to our Twitter and Instagram for that. You won't want to miss it. Take care, guys. Have a wonderful one, guys.